Uh, we are in James chapter 5, which if you're, if you're familiar with the book of James, it's the last chapter in the book of James. Uh, so we are getting close. We're going to take a break next week. I'm not going to close out the book of James on Easter Sunday. Um, so we'll take a break uh, for next week. And then the following week, we will wrap this baby up. But I keep waiting, you guys. At, since we started the book of James, I keep waiting for the nice, soft, easy listening week. And this week is not it. Uh, James just keeps hammering away, doesn't he? So we are in chapter 5. We're going to just do the first 12 verses. Um, he kind of divides this this section up into, we've got the verses 1 through 6 and then 7 through 12. He kind of says uh, two different things. And if you followed us and if you've been here and listened, um, James is kind of repeating a pattern over and over and over and over. And we've talked about this uh, constantly, how he's attacking um, what we've described as and what James describes as wisdom from below, or what we've called worldly wisdom. And he's constantly exalting or pushing um, wisdom from above, or what we would call godly wisdom, the way God designed the world to work. So there are obviously uh, very simple examples of that. Uh, if we eat food that is good and nourishing for our bodies, typically, you know, typically we are healthy people. There, there's just simple ways that God designed life to work. And if we operate life in those ways, typically good things will happen, right? God designed life to operate a certain way. And so what James is constantly doing is pushing us towards this viewpoint of life inside the gospel. Over and over and over, he refers to the law of liberty. He refers to, uh, and he is constantly pushing us back to the grace of Jesus. So this isn't... Um, immoral behavior versus moral behavior, which is typically how we read the book of James. We read the book of James and we, and we hear him go, um, your tongue causes all kinds of fires. Don't start fires with your tongue. And then we go, oh, I stink, because we all know what we do with our tongues, right? That's typically how we read the book of James. So we're trying to get underneath the surface and get to what he's really talking about. So he's attacking worldly wisdom and he's, he's exalting godly wisdom or the way god designed the world to work through jesus and in jesus so that's what he's doing here again and he uses it seems like each week james uses more and more blunt language and he doesn't stop verse one come now you rich weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you i don't think i've ever spoken that bluntly in my sermons unless i'm quoting scripture i don't think that i've ever said anything quite that strongly uh, but james just comes right out of the gate. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Now, um, as we get into this, we're going to see this, but I just want to make this point. James is not condemning wealth. We're going to see that in a minute. I just want to make that point. James is condemning what we do with it and how it affects our hearts. A couple things that he says. First, he accuses them of living in excess luxury in verses 2 and 3 to the point where their riches are actually rotting away. Uh, there was a TV show on years ago. I don't remember if it's on anymore, but it's called Hoarders. Anybody ever watch that show? And you, like, the, the cameras would go into this person's house and they would have food in their pantries from like the mid-70s and it was all just a rotting mess and they couldn't get rid of it because they might need it someday. That's what James is describing here. People that are accumulating wealth to the point where it's rotting away. And this is what he says. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you 
and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. And then he switches a little bit and he points to the the people that have suffered because of their hoarding. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters, harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So what James is condemning here is not wealth. What he's condemning is wealth that is hoarded to the point where others are suffering because of it. Now, at this point, it's easiest for, for us to go, well, I don't, I mean, he's not talking about me, right? We'll get to that in a little bit. And third, he proposes a charge against them in verses 5 and 6. You have lived on the, lux- on, on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. We'll come back to that. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person, but he does not resist you. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. So um, we have some people in here that deal with beef. What do you do before you take your cattle to slaughter? You fatten them up. Now, those of you that have experienced this or maybe know what this would be like, have you ever led a beef cow to the trough to fatten them up and have them go, here, dude, why don't you take some of my grain? Right? How about, let's, hey, everybody got enough grain? Right? Did that happen? No. They eat, and they eat, eat. That's the point. They're fattening for the slaughter. And so James is making a very, very, very specific point about what we do with our wealth. And again, our reaction is to go, well, I don't do that. Right? I'm not wealthy. We'll come back to that. It says they're guilty of self-indulgence. Okay, so now we, we go, okay, wealthy, well, that's not us. We're not wealthy, but self-indulgent? Now we're getting a little bit closer to home, aren't we? And the bottom line is this. The worldly wisdom that James is attacking results from failure, we talked about this last week, to recognize God for who he is and to recognize how the world is intended to work in and through Jesus Christ. When we reject or neglect or kind of shield ourselves from who God is and how he designed the earth to work, this is what we're left with. We're left with worldly wisdom. We're left with a way of operating life that, uh, in life that says, me, 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 because that's really all that's important. We put ourselves in a place where God is supposed to be. Haggai chapter 1 says this, You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, it blew away. One of my favorite preachers says that, that, that all of your toys and trinkets right now are tomorrow's landfill. I took my wife and kids and loaded up a bunch of trash from our remodel and went to the dump on a Saturday afternoon. Huge mistake. We sat in line for 45 minutes, almost ran out of gas. And we, wa- we got to the top of the hill, and there's a section where you can, for appliances, where they recycle appliances, there were probably, I kid you not, there were probably seven or 800 appliances stacked. And we sat there kind of marveling over the fact that two, three, four, five, maybe six years ago, those were the nice, shiny new toy in someone's laundry room or in their kitchen. And now they're sitting out here in the rain, right? It's that fast. So we looked for much, and behold, it became little. When you brought it home, it blew away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. 
Again, just like James, Haggai is just turning the screws, isn't he? You're filling your house with these toys that are constantly blowing away while my house lies in ruins. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I've called for a drought on the land and the hills on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth on man and beast and all their labors. So what Haggai is saying in the Old Testament, what typically would happen is, happen is when the nation of Israel started to walk away from God, the consequences were that the fruits of their labors no longer came. So I'm not exactly sure, I'm just going to be honest, I'm not exactly sure how that applies to you and me, but that principle applies. We've talked about this uh, often. When we live open-handedly, that means a couple of things. It means that we're able to hold a lot. It also means that we're able to receive a lot. And as we live open-handedly, that blessing of God runs through our fingers and runs out of our hands into other people's lives. And what happens, and this is a crude example, but it's a simple illustration of this idea of godly wisdom versus worldly wisdom. When we start to close our fist around those things, we no longer allow the blessings of God in our lives to overflow into other people's lives, but we can no longer receive. Now, I'm not saying you're going to lose all your money, but what I'm saying is that just like James says, uh, your fattened wealth is the fuel that burns the fire. And that we have to take that as a warning. James uses serious language. Haggai uses serious language. Drought in those days meant people died. Right? It didn't mean food prices went up a little bit. People died. People lost their homes, their children died, their wives died, and they had to leave to go to other lands to find work or beg. These are serious, serious consequences. Jesus tells a parable in in Luke 16, I think, that illustrates this principle as well. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. So illustrating uh, what we we would call heaven. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and sent Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that in your lifetime, you, you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. Now, we have to be careful here not to oversimplify this and say that this guy was rich, so he went to hell. This guy was poor, so he went to heaven. Because that's not what Jesus is illustrating here. The, the point that Jesus is illustrating is the same point that James is making in James chapter 5, that what we do with our wealth says a lot about the state of our hearts. It says a ton about the state of our hearts. And if we as wealthy people, and I'm saying we, as wealthy people are willing to let a man lie at our gates who desires nothing more than the scraps from your table, and if we're willing to let him lie there, And again, at his gate, this is like at his door, laying on his doorstep. He walks by him every day, living in his wealth, ignoring the need. If we are willing to live our lives in that fashion, it says something about our hearts and it's not a good thing. 
That's what Jesus is saying in this parable. That's what James is illustrating in James chapter 5. Now, again, we not, may not, you and I may not think of ourselves as wealthy, but this principle applies. How are we willing to look around and see the needs of the world around us? And are we? Because if we're not, it says something. It says something very, very, very serious. It raises two personal questions. The first is simply, how do I handle wealth? How do I handle wealth? We are the richest culture in the history of the world. America. Us. Right now. We are the richest culture in the history of the world. In the history of mankind, since God created the heavens and the earth, no culture has existed that has been so wealthy and so marked by overindulgence than the one that we live in. And because we are constantly looking up, right? Let's be honest, we are constantly looking up at those that have more and desiring to move up that ladder. Because of that, we don't see ourselves as wealthy. But if we would drive maybe a thousand miles south, I don't know how far is the border, your perspective might change. Some of you, the people in this room have had the opportunity to visit foreign countries and seen what poverty looks like. And it is not us. Every person in this room has experienced financial hardship. I'm not downplaying that. But we have not, most of us in this room that I know of have not experienced true poverty. We are unbelievably well. And how do we handle it? If we hoard it, if we are self-indulgent, what we have possesses us. I knew someone one time that would constantly say to me, I'm, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I would say, what do you mean? I don't know what I'm going to do. I, I don't know how I'm going to make it financially. While they had $50,000 sitting in the bank, hoarding it, right? You can call it saving it for a rainy day if you want. But to have the mindset that I am approaching financial ruin while you're sitting on a pot of gold, right? If we're being honest, is insanity, but it's worldly wisdom. That's how we operate, while there are people lying at the gates begging for the scraps from our... That's exactly what James is attacking. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. So again, wealth in and of itself, or the lack of wealth, is not a determiner of our heart. The determiner is how we view it in accordance with the people around us. Right? I'm not held accountable for what I don't have to give. I'm held accountable for what I do have to give, whether that's a million dollars or whether that's 10 cents. That's why it drives me nuts when you see a billionaire write a check for a million dollars for a charity and then somebody leaks something to the press and they get all this, oh my gosh, can you believe he gave a million dollars? Right? That's like you giving a dime. God bless him. Right? That's worldly wisdom. I can give something, the skim off the top, that sacrifices nothing, that costs me nothing, and I will receive all this praise for it. And I'm not saying that because he's, that, that, that person is rich. I'm saying it because it reveals something about the state of their hearts. They give a tiny bit. Right? Jesus talks about this. It, 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 he says, he points to the Pharisees who uh, walk publicly up to the giving plate and give a tiny bit and go, did everybody see that? You want me to do it again? You want to hear that clinkle again so everybody knows how much I gave? And then the widow comes in and gives the equivalent of a penny, which is all she owns. And Jesus looks at her and turns to his disciples and says, she has given a thousand times more. I hope we get this. We get what James is trying to say. I hope we get what Jesus is trying to communicate. It's not about how much you have. It's how you handle what you've been given. 
Am I willing to live open-handed and understand that the things given to me are not for me? It's not about me. It's intended to overflow into the lives of others. Right? The gifts that you've been given internally, your personality, everything that you've been given, your, 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 your strengths have been given to you by God for the benefit of others. Okay, this isn't just money. It's everything. Everything that you've been given by God has been given to you for the sake of those around you, not just you. And as soon as we start to view those things as things for us, it becomes an idol. And it starts to rot. Our heart starts to rot around it. And man, it's easy to do. The average household in America last year had $17,000 in credit card debt. That's the average. $17,000. Our country, as of two years ago, had 1.9 billion square feet of personal storage space outside the home. And here's the kicker. The average size of the American house has grown by 30% in that same time. Yet family sizes have grown smaller. So our families have grown smaller, our houses have grown bigger, and we've tripled the amount of outside-the-house storage space that we need to hold all of our junk as it rots away. This is insanity, stuff we don't need. And this is the heart that James is attacking. Get rid of it. It is not benefiting you. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul writes this to Timothy, As for the rich in this present age, charge them, right? Translated literally, command command them, charge them not to be haughty or proud or arrogant, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides for us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and to be ready to share. That's the antithesis, right? This is godly wisdom, understanding that what I have been given, I have been given in order that I might share with others and be generous and be rich in good works. The second question that we have to ask is, where is my heart? Luke chapter 12, verse 34, Jesus says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Can't put it any more simple than that. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. And so for most of us, this is pretty easy to determine. If we did an analysis of your browsing history over the last two weeks, what would pop up the most? Where is the majority of your free time spent? It's a pretty good. My wife and I had this conversation last night. I'll start to think about something and I'll start to dream about something and all of a sudden, that's all I'm thinking about. It's all I'm dreaming about. It's all I'm doing. It's my treasure. And my heart follows it. And sometimes I have to come back to center daily. It's not like I do it perfectly for six months and then I kind of drift. This is a daily battle. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So the first six verses, James kind of is attacking what he would refer to as the wealthy, which we've just said is not wealth, it's the heart behind it, correct? The heart behind that hoarding, me, 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 me mentality. And then in verse 7, he shifts. He says this, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. This is a farming community, so we understand that. We understand that when you plant corn, it's not going to come up six hours later, right? Now, we've engineered stuff. We've, you know, we make it grow faster so we can get two crops, and that's amazing. But that's still an extended period of time, and we have to be patient for the rains. We have to be patient for the growth. And James is saying here, be patient, brothers, until what? The coming of the Lord, 
right? So we have two different viewpoints on how life works here. We have get, 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 and we have waiting patiently for true riches, understanding that this doesn't give me anything, only this does. That's what James is highlighting here. That's the difference that he's pointing out to us. And he's saying, be patient. Confession. I have a hard time being patient with the microwave, right? Again, we are the richest culture in the the history of the world. We are the most impatient culture in the history of the world. Why? Because we have it all at our fingertips. They make ovens now that have microwave technology and like uh, regular oven technology and convection technology. Why? So that you can cook a turkey in 15 minutes. Because everything has to be faster. Because we are less and less and less and less It's just a symptom of this heart, you guys. It's the same thing. We want more and we want it now. And James is saying, patient. And we could go to the book of Revelation and read when he says that every tear will be wiped away. There will be no more sadness, no more pain, no more tears. Right? And all the quads in the world can't make that happen. I don't know why that just popped into my head. This is where joy and fulfillment lies. Not in this. Patient. It's simply a change of focus. Right? We're looking past all of the junk. Right? We're straining our necks, looking past it to what lies ahead. It's a change in focus, knowing that there will be injustice, knowing that you will be treated unfairly. That's why Jesus and all the, the apostles constantly compare the wealthy to the poor, because the poor represent those who are not necessarily pursuing this and are trying to look past it, and the wealthy represent those who are pursuing this and have this heart and are taking, 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 taking. It's not about how much money you have in the You get every paycheck. And yes, you will be a victim. Sometimes life will appear unfair. There will be things beyond your control. There will be events and people who anger and frustrate you. There will be things that you don't understand. Resist the urge to chase after that, right? Because um, that's what happens. I don't want it, I don't want it, I don't want it, I don't want it, I don't want it. Here I go, right? James says, he's coming. He's coming. Earlier in the book of James, we talked about our life is but a vapor. Eternity is forever. And understanding that goes a long ways to strengthening us to be patient because the Bible tells us that this life is over, even though it doesn't seem that way. But me and Toby were talking about this this morning. The older we get, the days seem to get longer and the years seem to get shorter. I cannot believe that Easter is next week. That is nuts. It's quick. I have a 12-year-old. He's going to be 30. I, in August, I'm going to have a teenager. I still feel like a teenager myself. Don't laugh, Kevin. It's fast. It's but a vapor. Be patient. Psalm 73, it's really long. I'm going to read the entire thing because I think it, it makes this entire point for us really, really, really well. Psalm 73. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell through their fatness and their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues strut through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. 
And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches, all in vain. Have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands? And So the writer of the Psalms is saying, I've been tempted and I've seen all these things and I've questioned it. And I've said, all in vain have I kept my heart clean. I've been patient and it's all been in vain. For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed me a wearisome task until... I went into the sanctuary of the Lord. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places and you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and arrogant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you, but for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Isn't that beautiful? And doesn't that perfectly describe each one of us? I've been tempted. I have tasted it, and it constantly pulls me, and it drives me to despair. If I focus on that long enough, I despair at everything that I lack. Then I enter the sanctuary of the Lord. Verse 8, you also be patient, establishing your hearts for the coming of the Lord is what? At hand. Again, life is but a vapor. James is saying, it's so close, you guys. Establish your hearts, right? Put down roots here. Establish your hearts here. Be patient here for the coming of the Lord. There's a lady in, I I believe it's in the 80s. Her name's Johnny Erickson Tata. She was in a diving accident as a teenager and broke her neck. Um, She's been in a wheelchair and she has, uh, Sherry, what, what else has she experienced? She had cancer, um, she lost a husband, didn't she? No. She has gone through trial after trial after trial after trial. And this is what she says about this life. Riches and good things in this life versus suffering. In fact, it very may be the opposite. It isn't the hurts, the blows, and the bruises that rob us of the freshness of Christ's beauty and of our lives. More likely, it is the careless ease, empty pride, earthly preoccupations, and too much prosperity that will put layers of dirty film over our souls. That's us. Careless ease, empty pride, earthly preoccupations, and too much prosperity. Does that not describe us? And it puts a a dirty film over our souls. Heartache and physical pain are real. What James is doing is he's inviting us to not run from pursuing things. Understand these things won't fulfill, right? And we talked about this last week. We're not talking about... uh, I mean, we are talking about good versus evil, sin versus holiness. But sometimes, you guys, it's far more effective to to focus on the promises of God, right? So let's put it this way. Um, Sex outside of marriage is wrong, sinful. True. But let's change our perspective a little bit and say, 
that God designed this in such a way that inside the covenant relationship of marriage, it is such a good and blessed thing and it is how he designed it to work so that you can flourish in it. We just said the same thing. But we've got to get past, don't do this, don't do this. Why? Because God has something better for you. That's why. We have to turn and look at him, right? Imagine holiness is God at the center of a circle. And what we do with our rules and our laws, and we draw a circle around here, and we go, don't go outside that circle. And so what we do is our focus is on not going outside the circle. And James is saying, turn around. You will gain nothing by looking at the outside of that circle. You will only gain by turning and looking at Jesus and pursuing him and moving inward. James is saying, these things will gain you nothing. Nothing. Pursue him that can give you everything. Affliction has a way of jackhammering our character. Have you ever seen the guys on the highway running the jackhammers? I've run one of those one time, and I swear my whole body came off the ground. Suffering has a way of doing that to our hearts. That dirty film, that dust, it shakes right off. But we have to understand this, and we have to establish our hearts and be patient in this life where we have afflictions, understanding that he is coming. Verse 9, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So here's what happens to me. When I get impatient, I become irritable. At who? Everyone around me. Why? Because it's their fault that I'm not in a good mood. Yesterday, I helped... Uh, a guy in our church poured concrete all morning. Then I came home, and my wife and I and the kids worked all afternoon burning stuff in the backyard, taking trips to the dump. All, we worked all day long. And we sat down for dinner that night, and I was exhausted, and I was tired, and I was a little bit irritable. And my youngest son, James, was just digging. Right? In a completely innocent way. He was just having fun. And man, I wanted to smack that kid, because I was tired, and I was a little bit irritable. That's not his fault, it's mine. So James, again, is saying, be patient don't blame it on other people. Don't grumble about one another so that you may not be judged. Verses 10 and 11. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. God has the heart of a loving. He is compassionate and merciful. He's not impatient like me. Isaiah chapter 49 says this well. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Yes. Our culture has illustrated that very well. While we murder baby, though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. Isaiah, unknowingly, describing the nails in Jesus' hands, saying, I will not forget. I will be steadfast. I will be there always, even when you're earth. I have engraved you on the palm. That's love. That's faithfulness. And Job did persevere. In Job 23, he says this, but he, he being God, he knows the way that I take. He's being attacked. And people are telling him, dude, you sinned. You need to repent. Job says, he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. Man, I wish I had that confidence. God knows my heart. When I've gone through this, I will come out as pure gold. And is that our attitude towards life? When I come out of this, when he returns, he's going to look at me and he's going to say, well done, good and faithful. Not because I'm perfect, because I'm running, but because I'm running. To, and I am not buying into this. 
I understand that this gains. And then verse 12, this is a tricky one. But above all, brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, that you may not fall under condemnation. Now, what James is doing here, this is a little bit complicated. What James is doing here is reversing the Levitical law. In the Old Testament, we have these, these laws and these things. And what they did was they cre- actually created a system where if you swore by something holy, that meant that you had to keep it. But if you swore by something mm, a little bit less, that means that you could wiggle out of your commitment. Jesus um, really attacked this in Matthew 23. He says, Woe to you blind guides, the Pharisees, who say, Whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. Right? So it's like, mm, the, this contract I can get out of, but this one I can't. Depending on who you swear by or what you swear by. You fools, you blind men. Which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever swears by an altar, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar swears by both the altar and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears both by the temple and by him who dwells within it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Just another illustration. M. I, using my mouth, am I saying things in such a way that I can get out of them? And am I using things for my benefit? Or am I simply letting the integrity of my tongue stand? Because why would we want to get out of a contract? We're willing to let my yes be yes because that's who God is. He is steadfast and unwavering, even if it costs me much. Because that was the principle here. They would make commitments, and if they, mm, I'll get out of this because it's going to cost me a little bit more than I thought. And Jesus calls them blind men and fools. Simply let your yes be yes. Understand who God is and how he designed the world. James is simply saying, no, no, Jesus fulfilled the requirements of the law. James is saying, don't swear at all. Again, he's repeating Jesus, I think in Matthew chapter 12. Yes, be yes. And it's a different way of living. It's a different way of living motivated by our hearts that understand that God is there. He is with us and he is coming back to get us. And our eyes are on him. So just like I did last week, you guys, I told you that as we get closer to May 7th, when we are going to take our offering for missions, we're going to touch on that. As you're praying about this, you guys, as you're praying about May 7th and what the Lord would have you sacrifice, okay? I'm not going to say what he would have you give. I'm going to say what he would have you sacrifice because I don't want you to give something that doesn't, that doesn't cost. That's of no benefit to you. And my argument would be this, that this sacrifice is just as beneficial for you as it is for the people. Every penny of this money spent or this money given goes outside to ministries from hopefully in this community, across the planet. As we're praying and as we're asking God what he would have us sacrifice, this is unbelievably important. What better thing could you spend money on? Because we spend money on a lot of stuff. $55,000 is not. Uh, this, uh, in a room this size, it seems like a lot, but it's not. And I cannot wait for the day that that number hits triple digits, right? 100, 200, 300,000. Not because that we can go, yeah, we did this, but it represents the freeing of our hearts from this, increasingly so. I, g- I gain nothing by you guys giving more. 
This isn't about me. This isn't about our church. This isn't about anything other than us turning around and moving closer to Jesus. And as we do, leaving these things behind and actively being, as James said, rich in works, as Paul wrote to Timothy, generous to others, increasingly so.